0: Welcome to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. Appearances can be deceiving. Even if we've heard that a thousand times, we can easily fall into the trap of judging our situations with only what we know. But as we continue our series of Battle Belongs, we will discover God knows far more than us, and we must trust his ways as we live for him. When I was a kid, it was often observed that I was tall I would hear these words you're so tall you must play basketball growing up in a small town there's not that many tall people I'm not that tall I actually came out to be fairly not I wouldn't say average but I'm I'm a little taller but not that tall But that was often what I had heard from elementary, middle, high school, from whether it be adults or friends, you're really tall, you must be really great at basketball. Anybody who'd actually know me would tell you I am terrible at basketball, very bad. Uh, It never was something that interested me. Uh, That's probably why I never practiced and honed my skills and all those different kinds of things. I was always impressed by the people who could you know, bounce the ball between their legs. I'm like, how do you do that? What kind of witchcraft is this? It was always just not my game. Now, if somebody were to look at me and think, oh, height, he must be good at basketball, and we were playing a, a game of pickup, right? And you're do, you know, divvying up teams, and somebody, the, key, the team captain would say, I'm gonna pick Matt first. Man, were they getting a bad draft pick. I would not be the person to put that team over, rather I would be a liability (laughs) for that team. And I don't think that ever happened because we were in a small town and most people knew I was terrible at basketball. (laughs) But this idea that, well, this generalization stereotypes these observations and the reality of things being different reminds me of a proverb, right? appearances can be deceiving, right? Just because something looks this way doesn't necessarily mean it is that way. That is one of the themes of today's message. We are continuing our series, The Battle Belongs, today. And The Battle Belongs, we're going through some Old Testament scriptures of when Israel began to forget that God provided everything for them and last week if you joined us uh, you might remember that we talked about how Israel envied all these other nations and say hey look at look at what they have and we want what they have so give us a king and God's like mm, you, you don't need one I'm your God be my people and they still said no we want a king want to be a, we want a king and in the midst of that, let me catch you up a little bit. And if, if you would like to, you can always go back and listen or watch that sermon from last week. It's online. It's readily available on our website or on our Facebook, all those different things if you want to get caught up. But after that, God basically gave them a king. He, he, he warned them. He said, hey, just so you know, this is what it's like to have a king. And sure enough, they, they got their first king, king first king was Saul. And Saul is pretty much universally regarded as a terrible king. His story is, is not great. Uh, Saul is one of these guys who, well, he, he struggled. He could be a cruel person. He was a paranoid person. Like if there's somebody with power, he would start getting paranoid. But the real problem with Saul as a king was that he would not listen to what God had for him to do. And yet, he committed two acts that were pretty egregious. God gave him a specific command, and he didn't do it. Uh, one was regarding, he, he basically made a sacrifice whenever the priests or the prophets needed to, to make a sacrifice. And the other thing which was sort of like what what broke the the camel's back, right? That's the phrase? Yeah. It broke the camel's back was uh, he did not listen in regards to the Amalekites. And he actually took some of their resources instead of destroying it as God had commanded him to do. And it's from this moment that God's prophet Samuel calls him out on these things. And Saul's like, oh, but I was going to do this, and sort of tried to, well, justify what he did. And Samuel walks away from Saul in this moment, and pretty much it's a falling out. It's it's done. And Samuel is pretty discouraged by this, but God has something else to do with Samuel. And that is where we pick up today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel Chapter 15, starting with verse 34, and we're going to read into chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning with verse 34, it will be on the screens for you, but if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up. And and again, as we read this, we will encounter that proverb appearances can be deceiving. We read these words. Then Samuel went to Ramah. But Saul went up to his home in Gabeah. Samuel never saw Saul again before he died, but he grieved over Saul. However, the Lord regretted making Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have found my next king among his sons. How can I do that? Samuel asked. When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Remember I told you that he's paranoid? Yeah. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make clear to you what you should do. You will anoint for me the person I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord instructed, and when he came to Bethlehem, The city elders came to meet him. They were shaking with fear. Do you come in peace, they asked? Yes, Samuel answered. I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now make yourselves holy, then come to me to the sacrifice. Samuel made Jesse and his sons holy and invited them to the sacrifice as well. When they arrived, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, That must be the Lord's anointed right in front. But the Lord said to Samuel, have no regard for his appearance or stature because I have not selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Next, Jesse called for Abinadab who presented himself to Samuel. But he said the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, no, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Jesus presented seven of his sons to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. And Samuel asked Jesse, is this all of your boys? There's still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because we cannot proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish-brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good-looking. The Lord said, that's the one. Go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. And the Lord's Spirit came over David from that point forward. Then Samuel left and went to Ramah. Before we go into the particulars of this situation I, I want to just ha- make sure that we note that last week God said to Israel if you get a king this is what you're getting and when you cry out to me because it's so difficult I'm not going to help you out if you if you joined us last week that's exactly well it's a paraphrase of what God says to the people of Israel and here we find God within the inner workings of anointing Israel's next king. Uh, What's going on here, God? Didn't you say something last week? Didn't you say something earlier in the passages? What is going on? This is something that happens often in Scripture, but we sometimes forget. God can change His mind. (laughs) God can change His mind. We sometimes struggle with that because we want a God that's static. But no, he has, well, the relationship has changed between him and Israel. And he doesn't want to give up on them yet. If there is anything that is consistent about God throughout Scripture, isn't about changing his mind about particular things. It's, it's, the consistent thing is, he is faithful. He is so faithful to these folks. And even though that they have rejected him, God says, you know, I guess I'll I'll, I'll be a part of this still. He he joins and he walks alongside them. Even though they have rejected God as their king, he's going to be a part of the selection process of kings. And as Saul panned out to be what God said their first king would be, God's moving on. God's going to do something new. And here's Samuel. Samuel is a prophet, right? Samuel has this really wonderful dialogue with God. He's completely intimate. He hears his words. And you can tell in this this narrative just how close they are. But at the very beginning, Samuel is grieving. Because you know what? Samuel is a part of the picking of Saul as well. He as a human is grieving that the first king of Israel, turned out to be exactly what God promised. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. We as humans grieve when things aren't right, when things don't work out. We really have these hopes. But God calls Samuel forward. And Samuel's like, okay. Where are we going? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Huh? Bethlehem. Why would you go to Bethlehem? I mean, Saul was from this wealthy family. They were from one of the great tribes. They had influence and power. If you looked at Saul, he was a head above everybody else, a man of men, a great, mighty leader, perfect for king. Why would we go to Bethlehem? Their economics aren't that great. They're not as influential. There's all these other different kinds of things. Why are we going to Bethlehem? Just trust me. Okay, but what about Saul? He's going to kill me. If he finds out that I'm I'm going to go anoint the next king, take a heifer. You're not just a person who anoints people to be kings. You're also still a priest, a prophet. You are here also to help people to draw near to me. So taking a heifer meant that he was going to have a purification ceremony for the people of Bethlehem. God's providing for him. God is providing everything that Samuel needs to do his work. Because, as we just mentioned, God is faithful. And there is no detail, big or small, that God is not going to take care of whenever he is looking to do something. And that's exactly what happens. Simon says, okay, off we go. And they get here. And the the interesting part about this entire scene is... Samuel is doing a lot of the same things that he did before with Saul. He comes up and he's like, oh, firstborn. Man, he's tall, be a great king, all these different kinds of things. God says, no. Yeah, but I mean, we we need this, that, these, and those to be our leader. No, 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 not that one. Now, you need to understand that firstborn in ancient Israel, were the ones who got the lion's share of the inheritance. They were the ones who were going to be leaders. If anybody was to become a leader, it would be the firstborn, or sometimes the secondborn, as what we found with uh, previous moments. But really, Samuel is doing exactly what he knows. So Samuel's like, okay, that one. Nope, not that one. Alright, well, okay, God, what about what about the second one? I mean, that makes more sense. No, no, not that one either. And they get to the third one. No. They go through seven sons. And Sam is like, is there an eighth? Is there an eighth kid? Yeah, he's he's shepherding right now. Which there's two reasons. There's one of two reasons. One that's not likely and one that's more likely. Why David's not even present for this? One, His dad doesn't like him, and hey, you don't get to be a part of the purification ceremony. It's like, we're going to forget the youngest to go to church today. You know, just stay at home, and you do that kind of... I doubt that's what happened with Jesse. More than likely, the reason why David is not present for this moment is because of their economic status. They did not even have enough money to hire somebody to take care of their livestock for their son to be present for a purification ceremony. This detail is important. It is showing that the family of Jesse isn't the most powerful, influential, wealthy family in Bethlehem. They're exact opposite. God is picking the next king from among those that, well, quite frankly, most of Israel and, let's be honest, ourselves would not pick. After all, we as humans go by who's the most popular, who's who's the richest and self-made, who is successful, all of these things. They will be a great leader. No, no, God's going to pick from this family that doesn't have much and it's the eighth son. It's not even the fourth son or the fifth, it's the eighth son. And from this we begin to observe, as Bruce Birch says, God finds possibilities for grace in the most unexpected places and through the most unlikely persons. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you will not be surprised by this because God works through the unlikely people. God works differently than what we typically operate from. He sees us differently. He sees others differently. And as we see throughout Scripture, he elevates those who are low to show how to rightly live. He casts down the powerful and wealthy continuously throughout Scripture. David is a reminder of who Israel is. Israel is a nation that was liberated from slavery and captivity, a marginalized people. David is the eighth son from a non-wealthy family within Israel, and he is going to lead them? Oh, wait, yeah, God, this makes sense. You sort of act in this pattern often. Now we're getting it. But even Samuel struggles with this. And guess what? You and I struggle with this. I know it. I talk to y'all. I know some of y'all. We look at people through the lenses that we see success. We look at people through the lenses of what we think is right. We look at people through lenses that God isn't looking through. And so Samuel has to rely upon God. And by the way, David has to rely upon God to trust everything in this situation. And it causes us to really begin to think, do I see, the, where, the, do I see people, do I see the world the way that God sees it? Or do I see it in the ways that I think are good or the ways that I've been taught by our culture or all of these different kinds of things. Do I see people as God sees them? In the world's usual power arrangements, this would not be the stuff of royal lineage. But in God's plans, sometimes the last shall be first. Even an absent eighth son tending the sheep. Too often, we fail to look for possibilities of grace and hope beyond the traditional channels of power, influence, and success. God has greater vision than you and I. Praise the Lord. But the key for God's will to come about in this moment is obedient servants. Obedient servants who trust God, who believe that the battle does belong to him. What do you mean the eighth son, the young kid. He's shorter than everybody. He should not be leading Israel. He's not a man's man. He's good looking as the scripture says, but What do you mean? The other small key moment here is that he is out shepherding. A shepherd sacrifices themselves for animals and cares for them and guides them and leads them. No, he is primed to be king of Israel, though he might not seem it to be. Good leaders rarely seek out power and responsibility. Good leaders are generally put into situations by God. And so Samuel and David receive what God is giving. They trust him. They trust that whatever comes next, the battle will belong to God. And you should know this. After God anoints David, you should know that his ascent to the throne is not easy. (laughs) If you continue to read through these passages, you will find that there will be attempted assassinations on his life. There will be backstabbing. There will be lies. There will be all kinds of dysfunction around David. When he sits underneath that horn is anointed. He is committed to what God has called him to do, no matter how difficult that road is. So friends, hear just some of these aspects of this story to show how Samuel and David really do trust God. When Samuel is afraid that what the current king Saul might do if he finds out that he's going to anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel remembers that the battle belongs to God and he will provide. When God says no to the firstborn, the tallest, the pure leaders in Jesse's family, Samuel could have he could have said but but God he doesn't He trusts him. He trusts that God knows what he's doing, that the battle belongs to him. And when Samuel's led to David, the shortest, the eighth in line, the poor, the marginalized, everyone has to believe that the battle belongs to God. And when the responsibility is thrust upon David to be Israel's next king, he has to trust that the battle is going to belong to God. For you and I, we don't live in Israel. We don't live in a world where God is, is dictating these kinds of things. It's a lot more complicated. and We live in a different covenant now. We live under Christ. And every single one of us has been called by Jesus to follow him. To follow him. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that the way that he actually lived is the way that you and I live. It's not easy. There's plenty of wrong in the world. There's plenty of injustice in the world. The concept of forgiving people when they don't deserve it is radical enough, let alone hearing whenever Jesus says, love your enemy, and oh, whenever somebody slaps you, give them your other cheek. But I like this one. (laughs) These are radical things that God has called you and I to live in. And too often, we don't live in this way because we forget to trust that God's going to provide us how to live exactly as he has called us to live. And so we have to remember that the battle belongs to God. We have to trust him. We have to ask for his vision to see the world as he sees it, not in the ways that we have traditionally grown up. Oh, I'm going to follow this person. Do you hear about this one guy or this one lady, they're leading all these people, they're so successful, they have all of this, and they're doing all these things. Stop. Do you have the vision of God? Because God is doing things in those who are the most marginalized in our world. Are we just looking for the glitz and the glam and the popularity and the wealth? Friends, we as followers of Christ, Have to remember that the battle belongs to God and so when God calls you and he calls all of us just so you know if you're here for the first time and you're like eh, I'm not exactly sure about this life with God let me tell you that God loves you and has a wonderful life for you it's it's difficult it's not easy but God provides everything to live a life of truth and a life of love and a life of peace and a life of hope and a life of joy and a life of justice and a life of goodness But for us to walk in that way, we must recognize that the battle belongs to him. When, when the thoughts of who we have been or who we are or what we have done or what we've accomplished begin to define who we are, we, tr- we begin to define ourselves through that way, we have to remember that the battle within ourselves belongs to God and we must give ourselves to him and trust him. If we are called to do something, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to forgive that family member, to serve in a church, to, to go into the poorest of our community and, and care for those in need, and we think, I can't do that. I've never done that. I am not equipped to do that. The battle belongs to God. God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called when we see evil happening in front of us and in the world, and we are tempted to meet that evil with evil. Oh, if they're going to play like that, then I'm going to play like that too. We have to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. You can't be loving your neighbor. You can't be loving your enemy if you begin to do evil to match the evil that they're doing, friends. And when we go looking around this world and we begin to write off people because of A, B, C, or D, their lifestyle, their economic status, their race, anything that we cause ourselves to divide, their political affiliation. If you write people off, you are going to miss out at what God is doing in the world around you. Because God has a greater vision of this world than you and I. We have to remember that the battle belongs to God. Friends, if you think that you cannot do what God has called you to do, give up a sin, a habit, something that somebody's done against you, if you can't give up a a worldview, if you can't give up whatever it is to God, I'm here to tell you, and this is good news. God can transform you because the battle belongs to Him. There was a time in my life that I actually did play basketball. I got to college, and I began to have a, a group of friends that they played intramural basketball. And um, one year, they invited me to play, and I said yes, and I told them what they were getting. (laughs) And as I look back at that moment of why in the world they would invite me to play, because again, like for example, my very first game, I think I was the eighth or ninth man off the bench. I was not the sixth man, I was the seventh man. I was... I was down the bench, right? The first minute that I played, I get in and I commit a foul like that. (laughs) Like, I'm terrible. I'm telling you, I'm just terrible. But why in the world would they invite me to be a part of that? Because, you see, the vision of my friends, the vision of the community, the vision of that team wasn't about success or competition or whatever it might be. Granted, we were all competitive people, and we did win, but that was only because my one roommate drops threes like Steph Curry. Like, seriously, the man is ridiculous. Now, the reason why I was invited in was because it wasn't about winning. It wasn't about that. It was about the relationships that we have. It was the blessing of being able to have fun together. It was the blessing of just doing something in a way that would bring us closer. And I got to tell you, some of the friends that were on that team are still, to this day, some of my best friends. I call them. I text them inside jokes. We pick up right where we left off. All of those different kinds of things. They didn't invite me to be they didn't invite me to be the best center they've ever had. They invited me because we had a love among us. And that kind of vision is the kind of vision we need to catch as followers of Christ. We need to recognize that how we see the world and how we see other people isn't to see them of of their pros and their cons or a list of accomplishments or all these things or or even looking at ourselves in that same kind of way and defining ourselves. Rather, we look at each other as people who are loved by God, people that have been saved by God. And when you begin to look at people in that kind of way, you're able to live in the way that God has called us to. And those battles that we want to hold on to begin to become, well, they're not important. Because we begin to trust that God has those conflicts, those difficulties, those moments in His hands. The battle belongs to Him. And as He takes care of it, we love as He has called us to love, we live as He has called us to live, we do His will as he has told us to do his will. We must trust God and that he is doing everything that we need to live in the way that he has called us to live. Friends, may you live in that way.